Hello and welcome back to Out of the Question. I'm Adam Zwar, your host. Today we're talking to the playwright, author and Guardian columnist Van Batham. We cover our humble beginnings to early steps as a playwright at the University of Wollongong, to studying theatre in Britain and having multiple award-winning plays staged over there, to her residency at the prestigious London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and being appointed literary manager at Britain's renowned Finborough Theatre. We also discuss Van returning to Australia and taking a job at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne before The Guardian and television punditry came calling. It's been a wild journey, but it was a journey Van always knew she'd be going on. You know, like I made a decision when I was a kid, like I'm from nothing, like I'm from the burbs. My dad was a club manager and sometimes a taxi driver and my mum was a steno and there are no working artists in the entire history of my family. In fact, the poshest person my family ever generated was my father's dad was a teacher for five minutes before he died of tuberculosis. And like I had no one, no one I encountered at school, I only went to state school, like had any frame of reference for this thing that I knew I wanted to do with my life and had this profound calling. I was, and I knew from when I was a really small child that I was going to be a writer, that's what I was doing. And I just could have no backup plan. Like that was it. There was going to be no alternative career. There was going to be no, oh, I'll just do a sneaky law degree on the side or I'll just do, I'll just do my teaching diploma just in case, (laughs) you know, kind of thing that I just had to find a way through. And it's, I mean, it's madness. But when you've got when you've got vocation, you can't fight it. Recently, Van released the hugely successful book QAnon Anon, which investigates the QAnon cult of conspiracy. It's a book that's now in its third print run. Now, please excuse my ailing voice in this interview. I didn't have the virus, but I definitely had a virus. As usual, I started by asking Van how her colleagues would describe her. I get a lot of praise for my baking. I can't really bear the idea of going into a, a, like a rehearsal room without providing cookies or lardy oh. buns, which are oh. a particular favourite. So I, hopefully I would get some points for that. I definitely talk too much and in some situations that's really helpful and in others less so. I don't have the best relationship with the concept of time. I'm quite I'm quite time fluid and I, I think that would be that would be something that would be mentioned in various uh, fora around the workplace. Obviously, I spend most of my time working from home, and I am that kind of solitary writer, which is interesting because my attraction always was to the theatre and the people of the theatre. And it's been particularly interesting over the the period of coronavirus to work out just what the source of that attraction to the theatre is for people and I realised that theatre people just love theatre people. We love being around one another and the show (laughs) is just the sort of transition object for the conversations in rehearsals and the sort of post-show get-togethers and the crazy theatrical stories and everybody has all of these great stories about the most disastrous project they've ever done and things Mm. that have gone wrong. And I think certainly my coworkers would describe me as uh, I'm adept at storytelling in that particular space. <laughs> involved in so many theatrical disasters coming from the zero budget avant-garde feminist theatre practice tradition, as you can imagine. Uh, and I think 
I think I hope that uh, I bring an an entertainment value in my collaboration to the to the work circles I'm moving. Over the next few minutes, Van's going to take us on a journey from making theatre at university to making theatre in London, to returning home to the Malthouse, and then transitioning to a career in media. So I was a student at the University of Wollongong and studying theatre there, which was the best place because you can, a regional university is the best place to be an art student and creative art student because you can, no one's watching and you can experiment wildly and fail just magnificently. And you live in this wonderful bubble of people who are just like you and you build your own society around that. So I wrote some terrible plays at the University of Wollongong. Oh my God, like at literally true sort of the feminist version of Boy Meets Tractor, Soviet trauma, so earthy, <laughs> so worthy. And I started to, to obviously because I was based in Wollongong and I was a woman, I got stereotyped pretty quickly in industry terms as somebody who'd want to do community theatre and I was on that track sort of politically. And I started doing community theatre and I was part of a group that won a grant to do grown-up theatre uh, at... Theatre South, which was a little professional theatre company, sort of a legacy of that 1980s arts funding craze, mm-hmm. and wrote this script and the theatre rejected it. But I thought it was pretty good and I just, I had a feeling that it could go further. And um, in my personal life at the time, this is in the year 2000, I had a flatmate who was a visual artist who I was really close to and we'd lived together for a long time and we had a really beautiful relationship and he died like randomly. He had an aneurysm in his sleep and he was so brilliant and just on the cusp of doing incredible things with his career. His paintings were getting bought by major galleries and it was all that sort of romantic young artist sort of story and then it was just over. And I had this sort of reckoning with myself where I was like, I could stay in Wollongong doing community theatre on grants for the rest of my life or I can do the other thing, the thing that I really want to do and just try my luck. And because I was still a student, I applied for a scholarship to study at university in England and went to the University of Sheffield, which had this big theatre department. And I literally picked the university because apparently they'd done a production of Richard III where they set fire to a hill fort. And I was like... That's where I belong, yeah, with the yeah. hill fort burning Richard the Third people. <laughs> and I went over there and I still had this script that the company in Wollongong had rejected and I handed it to one of my tutors and he passed it to Michael Grandage, who now, of course, is one of the most famous directors in the world and who ended up running the Donmar. But at the time he was at Sheffield Theatres and he went, actually, this kid's got some talent, I'll give her a break. And they wow. the show. So I made... I had one of those horribly awkward conversations with my beloved university boyfriend where I was like, things are happening for me in England. I'm going to extend my exchange for just a couple of months and I'll come back when the work runs out. And 10 years later, I came home. Wow. So so how long were you meant to go there for? I was, so I didn't, my exchange was six months, but <laughs> the, the kids who I met who were in the theatre department who took the show, who worked um, with Sheffield Theatres to put the show on. They I, they called me saying, we want to take it to Edinburgh. We've got a little bit of support. Come and do the Edinburgh Festival. And I, I, I literally remember this conversation, like I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be gone for just a few weeks and 
and then I'm sure, like, you know, and then I'll come home and then everything will be all right. But this <laughs> unbelievably patient man. And it, I just kept getting more work. And they were all, all the other kids were, you know, really ambitious, sort of aspirational British theatre types. And we're going to take on the world and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. They met me at the airport in Edinburgh with this massive sign saying, Edinburgh welcomes famous Australian playwright Van Batham. And I was oh, like, wow. I'm like an undergraduate from Wollongong. Nobody knows who I am. And they were like, they do now. You know, it was stuff yeah. like that, that real sort of brassy uh, ambition and so yeah so I just kept getting all these little jobs and training opportunities and I got a job with the BBC on this program where they were teaching international young writers how to write for radio and I got a job at Lippa which is the performing arts school founded by Paul McCartney to develop some crazy play and then I got a residency at Lambda and met you know wow. this incredible generation of young actors who, who are all extraordinarily successful now and got to work with them and just did that whole picking up skills and taking what opportunities I could get. I, I should point out I lived in absolutely shocking poverty because I had no income support. I was there on an ancestry visa due to a relative born in Glasgow who died in 1944. And I had to, you know, teach special ed kids in some pretty deprived areas of London. And I did medical experiments for money and I had a paper route and, you know, did these, those sort of crazy cash in hand jobs that you do when you're in that situation. And I used to sometimes have to rent out. I lived in this bed sit in Pimlico, which had a bed built into the ceiling because I had to be near the theatres and I had to be able to get to places really quickly and go everywhere on my BMX because I couldn't afford to take the tube. And sometimes I was so down on my luck, I would have to sublet this terrible bedsit that I lived in and sleep behind the couch. And yeah, and I was this like little tiny Australian person like living in the corner of the lounge room trying to, you know, get enough money together to move back into my own apartment. But then you got some success, you become a literary manager and... and... It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Like yeah, I had yeah. months where I did really well and months where I had to generate scripts and material and just had nothing. But I did get the job as the literary manager at the Finborough Theatre, which was pretty right. life-changing. So yeah. the Finborough is also like a like a legacy theatre of the sort of 70s like theatre collective project. And it's got this amazing history, like it broke um, Mark Ravenhill and it broke, um, oh, I mean, so many of them, the woman who wrote Posh, like there's this long trajectory of writers who got their start there and it's yeah, just a 40-seat yeah. theatre but it's in Chelsea, people come to it, they know the product is good. It has this extraordinary artistic director, um, who Neil McPherson, who's been there for hundreds of years, who's just a really sophisticated programmer, really under has a just encyclopedic understanding of the British canon and, mm. you know, and that sort of radical hard-edged theatre. But even then, to get paid, you had to do hours behind the bar. So the first, time, the first time I was ever in the New York Times was because they had flown a critic. They, I mean, the, the Finborough is amazing. They, the New York Times flew a critic from New York to see a show in this 40-seat theatre. Wow. And he, uh, I was behind the bar on opening night and he wanted a beer. And I was like, sir, it's a wine bar. <laughs> full Australian 
attitude. You know, barmaid attitude. <laughs> and he thought this was hilarious and this generated this article in the New York Times and I was just like, this is what I'm going to be famous for is for being a rude waitress. Van says there was an unofficial mentoring of young playwrights in Britain and she was the grateful recipient of a lot of goodwill from more established writers as well as a couple of legends. I mean, I got to hang out with Mark Ravenhill, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, right. Um, and he's definitely... One of my, fa- he'd always been a one shopping of my and favorite. fucking, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, some explicit Polaroids. That's and right. Some really amazing Brecht adaptations. And one of those writers who's extremely generous with young people. Um, David Gregg is another playwright who I just adore. Who wrote Midsummer, which is one of my favorite ever plays. He was extremely supportive as well. Um, Did you meet Sarah Kane at all? Was that part of your? No, she had uh, she had left us just a couple of years before right. I got there. So I was, but I mean, her influence was a really large part of my education when I was at the University of Sheffield. Was that everybody had sort of witnessed the Sarah Kane thing and mm. that. Sarah Kane, Anthony Nielsen, sort of generation of quite, you know, confronting brutalist drama had had a big effect on all the young playwrights. They had seen the Sarah Kane shows at the Royal Court mm. and were, and I worked with people who had worked with her and had that sort of echo. And obviously, you know, that was the great stylistic influence. We're all trying to be the next Sarah Kane and like <laughs> sort of brutal things. But it took me a long time, like way too much longer than it should have, for me to realise that I actually really liked genre and I really liked comedy and gradually sort of shed the uh, the ghost of Sarah Kane from my own work <laughs> and um, and just embraced my ability to write fast, you know. Yeah. So, But it, certainly it's interesting looking back on the stuff that I wrote then, you know, really intense plays about sexual assault and the war in Yugoslavia and, you know, like terrorism and everything had to be sort of big and brutal and existential. And now I'm like, good-looking people taking their clothes off is totally fine. So when did you move back? Why did you move back to Australia? And what was what year was that? Well, I got caught when the government changed in 2010 um, in Britain. So Cameron got elected and it was essentially the end of my ride there. So gotcha. all the work that I'd been doing to sustain myself, grants and various opportunities and attachments and institutional funding, they were all cut. Uh And in a situation where those opportunities were cut, there was obviously a preference and a prioritisation of British people rather than Australian blow-ins because the the industry there was, I mean, they cut like 900 million pounds from the British Film Authority, like the British Film Financing Corporation, things like that. Um, And also I got caught in the riots in London because they had those terrible riots where, you know, entire parts of South London were being set on fire and I was in my friend's apartment and we could hear the riders coming down the street smashing windows of shops with crowbars and my friend was like, it's all right, I've boiled some oil so if they come up the window, we can pour boiling oil on them. And I was like, the fact that's not a completely irrational response in this situation is a very bad sign and I need to get back to Australia. And I just started applying for jobs going, I just, I'm just not really cut out for boiling oil. So Van returned to Australia in 2011 and worked at the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne as an artistic associate before fate intervened and took her life in a different direction. It was actually quite an artistic shock uh, because at the Finbra I had all the freedom in the world and 
main stage Australian companies, that's not how they work. They're actually very regimented places. And in Britain, where a programming season is never more than three months ahead, in Australia, you look at programming that starts taking place like 18 months before the show goes on. And I found that really difficult. Like I found there was quite a cultural adjustment um, and I did actually really struggle at the Malt House for that reason. I mean, I met incredible people and I worked on incredible shows, but my sort of, I do what I want nature didn't really work. I'm definitely more of a contract player than a company girl in many yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But in 20, I hadn't been back very long. I'd been back for maybe a year when my father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And my father was my closest friend and we had a complex but extraordinary relationship. And the worst place to be when you are going through something quite material and serious is a theatre company because all of the drama is just becomes meaningless to you. And I just couldn't – I just wasn't there. Like I was – I was sort of struggling in that environment anyway and then when my father was dying and I was flying back to Sydney from Melbourne every weekend and just watching this person who was so beloved to me disappear and I went on bereavement leave when he died and spent a month in Sydney just playing Scrabble with my mother and crying and I got a phone call from a friend who said, look, you have to leave the house you know, like your father is not here to witness a performance of grief. That's not what he would have wanted. You have to leave the house and re-engage with your life. Wow. And she said, I'm hosting a, I'm doing a feminist comedy night at the Vanguard in Newtown. And it was a night that I'd done before. It was a show called Cherche La Femme. And the idea was it was Q and A, but everybody was a feminist and everybody get really drunk and do jokes and, you know, like free-flowing conversation. And in Melbourne, she usually did it at pubs like the Gasso in Collingwood, you know, where everybody in the audience was a 19-year-old from RMIT with green hair critiquing their cis privilege kind of thing, right? And, <laughs> like, they're my people. That's my tribe. I get it. <laughs> and so I went to the Vanguard, which is a venue that I used to know when I was living in Newtown back in the day. And... I am terribly short-sighted, like I am just shockingly, my eyesight is shockingly poor. And of course I've gone on stage and I can't see the audience. I know it's a full house, it's very exciting. And I'm on stage with people like Noreen Young and Nakia Loy and people like that. And it gets very bawdy very quickly. And of course I haven't left the house in weeks and I'm grieving and in that sort of comedy place where you're doing jokes about minstrel death and you know, like just going there because there is no tomorrow. And the lights flicked on and I, at the end of the show, and I looked down and I was like, Jesus, that woman looks familiar. And someone went, yeah, because it's Anna Bly, the former Premier of Queensland. And I had this horrible moment of realisation where the entire room were women in suits. Like it was a full-on middle-class, middle-aged audience. And I was like, Jesus Christ, who is here? Who have I talked about minstrel death in front of kind of thing? And then a couple of days later, I got this phone call from The Guardian saying, hi, we see your gig at the Vanguard the other night. Would you like to be a columnist? It was the most surreal. I was just, I thought it was my friend Karen, like playing a joke. Because Were you still I, at the Malt House? Were you still contract? I was still at the Malt House and I was just like, I, 
I don't know. What? What are you talking about? They're like, you know, the British Guardian. And I was like, yeah, I've lived in, I lived in London for 10 years. I am a Guardian reader. I'm, <laughs> I am the person who reads the Guardian every day. I have fangirled George Monbiot at a book festival. Like I am that person. And, and they were like, look, we'd really like, we're coming down to Melbourne. We're looking for columnists. We'd really like to meet you. We think you're hilarious. And I was like, I'm not a journalist. I'm a theatre person. And they were like, all the better. We want a new crop of people. We want people who nobody else has seen before who get the Guardian brand. And they went, just give us a column. So I wrote the first opinion column in the first edition of Guardian Australia. And it was about being a bogan, um, which obviously is my expertise, is, <laughs> is being a large bogan. And... Then they called me back saying, will you do another one? And will you do another one? And, we, and then I got a contract. And that was when I parted company with the Malt House. I was like, you know, my life is going in a different direction. Yeah. And so you started off kind of writing about, I, I suppose, social stuff, cultural stuff. And then did you move into politics from there? Well, the my secret life, I mean, I, I've packed a lot in, Adam. I've done, <laughs> I've done a lot of stuff in a lot of different places. One of the reasons I ended up in England in the first place was that I had been really heavily involved in student politics and then activist stuff um, as a student and then as a as a young adult. And I was I had been on the front lines against the Howard government. Like I was president of the National Union of Students in New South Wales and not affiliated to a political party, which meant that I didn't get the kind of broad-based support that you otherwise would doing really full-on activist stuff, like getting arrested a lot and having an ASIO file and, and you know, like, and I was helping out, like, Burmese freedom fighters and, you know, international student solidarity kind of stuff and, and guys who were pretty traumatised and brought with them a lot of sort of international angst as well. And I did that for a really long time and I was just like, I, I actually, I have done seven years on the front lines of student protests, environmental protests, like women's organising, you know, like LGBTQIA solidarity activism, like all of this different stuff. And if I don't make some decisions about my life and what I want to do, this is it. This is all it's going to be. And I'm tired and I have done my time and I need a break. So they were all the sort of, um, they were all the influences that sort of got me to England and to take that risk in the first place. But when I came home 10 years later, a lot of the people who I knew from back in the day had been elected to parliament or were, you know, running unions or major non-government organisations. So when the, gov so when the um, Guardian were like, what can you write about? I was like, I can write about anything. I mean, I know this whole generation of people who are now suddenly extremely powerful and important and I've known them for a really long time. So it's not that I came in with like a blank sheet, like I came in very well networked in that kind of space. Gotcha. I mean, you can imagine how surprised everybody who knew me as this sort of mad radical from Wollongong was when I turned up with a column going, hey guys, I'm going to write about the budget. <laughs> you know, that went down yeah, yeah. extraordinarily well. Um, <laughs> So that's how I sort of got back into that space. I was always fascinated how Van made the jump from theatre to one of Australia's most high-profile pundits and also where she honed her sparkling turn of phrase. Now I know. So returning to our set questions, what's the most unhelpful feedback Van's received? Oh, um, are women really like this? I think was that was from a director when I was really young and it was a, a theatre director who I think... Uh, the 
polite term is that he was probably past the peak of his <laughs> career success. And he was directing a, a show in Wollongong that I had, and it was one of those things where I had agreed to do it for free for friends. It was a script that had already been done. I didn't ask for any money. I was like, sure, you can do it. And then suddenly was in this conversation with this much older man who was like, I just can't see a young woman demanding sex from a young man. And I was oh, just wow. like, I believe you may have missed some yeah, important yeah. social milestones. <laughs> That's the most unhelpful advice I've ever received. <laughs> Um, and do you know, I actually think that one of my strengths as a writer is that I am very good at seeking out people who have advice they want to share. Um, once you get over your, I'm 18 years old and know everything stage, which, you know, for some of us can last 10 or 15 years. Oh yeah. Once you hit that point of going, Theatre is a collaborative art form and that's actually, I really love being around these people. I'm just going to soak it all up. I'm just going to mm. absolutely. And it's the most extraordinary thing when you have that moment of going, all of these people are not actually on the payroll to make me better, but they're doing it anyway. Mm. And I'm not going to resent that gift. I'm going to take it all on board. So apart from the, the unhelpful man who was just confounded by the behavior of young women, uh, which I, you know, it, and I think he sort of stays with me because I think in everything I've ever written ever since, you know, it, I'm notorious for having these young women characters who, you know, do what they want and cause trouble and, you know, seduce men and blow things up. Mm. You know, that's uh, that's very much a motif of my work. That all makes sense, given her most recent plays bear the titles Banging Denmark, Notoriously Yours, The Troll Hunter, Bedtime for Bastards, Muff, and the bloody chamber. Moving on to question three, what's the failure Van most cherishes? There are just so many. I was involved in an Edinburgh show that destroyed my relationship with about 10 people simultaneously. <sighs> and it was one of those, it was, it was a show, it, the show you do when you really should just be in therapy and go, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm committed to the show. I must do it. And it was, it was sort of the last play in my I'm going to be very serious phase. Serious people write serious drama before I realised that comedy was actually harder to do and valued by more people. <laughs> and it was about the collapse of, of post-Soviet idealism. Can you imagine? Yeah. What an absolute ticket seller that was. <laughs> so what's the play about? It's about, you know, negotiating a left identity in, you know, a post-Cold War reality of failed <laughs> ideological projects. Wow. Like that had them on the edge of their seats. And the <laughs> director was a guy who I'd had like an on again, off again thing with. A relationship would be a massive exaggeration. <laughs> um, the producer was a guy who I was in a relationship with. The other, the co-producer was a pathological liar, which I found out after she stole my credit card and went to Switzerland. Uh, they recruited the brilliant young actor who was an absolute loon and travelled everywhere with a fish in a bag. <laughs> and everything involved in that show was disastrous. And it ran over time. The director's parents turned up and started abusing the producers of the venue. And I was just oh. like, why is my life collapsing? Like, I don't understand why everything is utterly wrong. And because of the the pathological liar producer, who I can speak about now because she, she has recently died, um, 
there were all of these dodgy contracts and she had hacked somebody's email and the guy I was seeing was implicated and he was horrified and the relationship ended. The show was a disaster and it was, and I I never spoke to anybody involved ever again. One of the actors, I, I see photos of her children on Facebook and it always makes me feel guilty. Like I'm responsible for a moment of her life that wasn't. <laughs> Not really. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. The playwright does tend to take responsibility in their own minds, but <clears throat> um, you can't help We're it world sometimes. builders, Adam. We, yeah. we are the creators of the world. You must take responsibility for your own <laughs> creatures, you know. <laughs> And I still feel I feel guilty about it, and I did not defraud a single person. No, no, you didn't have you know, everybody one ended up getting part. Oh, it was just, and it was it, it. The lesson was, like, the lesson was vet everyone, vet everyone. Oh. Like the lesson was don't don't be the most experienced person on the show, because no. then everything will fall to you if it goes to pieces. Oh, it was. And what did you do really, afterwards? Huh? Oh, sorry. What did you do afterwards? What was the I kind cry. of... I mean, I cried. I, I went to Russia, um, which is not the place to go if you're if you're recovering from a breakup and a professional disaster. Leave Russia off the list, can <laughs> I say, yeah, because yeah. there is nothing... Um, there is nothing particularly healing about watching baby shoes float to the, the top of a pond in Gorky Park. Like, that's not going to cheer you up. That's Lord. not a thing. That will happen. Um so yeah I, I mean after that experience i was like my career is over this is so embarrassing um i can't show my face anywhere i mean the cleanup job on that show was just ridiculous and i just thought i'm finished but i got a phone call after these sort of di- this horrible disaster that i just never wanted to speak about again from an old friend who went i will produce your next show what have you got and oh, I was just like, really? Like, you're prepared to rescue me? And he was like, we're in this together, aren't we? Like, aren't we doing this? I should point out that That's this nice. guy went on to become a professional gambler and is now one of the top um, poker players in the world and plays, like, million-dollar tables. And I, it, I should have realised at the time th- that this was a guy who really liked a um, sophisticated ga- gaming strategy, I think, was yeah. the scenario. So I did a, I did a new show with him and he... he did really well it did rescue me I was back in the zone but I had those months of going have I set my career on fire have I totally destroyed everything I've ever worked for and will I ever be able to put something back together oh yeah because the theatre world is small and you do kind of you do think like any misstep looms large oh uh, yeah, and when something goes wrong and you're already sort of marginal, when you're a foreigner in a country like Britain, a, a setback is pretty profound. Oh, yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Um, which word or phrase do you most overuse? Uh, you know and like, which anybody listening to this podcast would know already, that I speak just slightly faster than I think which is a problem and like, and, you know, become pauses for my brain to catch up with my mouth. Do you write, you know, and like as well? All the time. Yeah. yeah. So I've got a novel on the cooker at the moment and another play and uh, a musical or two musicals and it turns up in the dialogue and I'm like, Badam, what even are you? You know, I literally have to, after first draft, I have to do a like, and, you know, search. 
because I just get into the rhythm of it. And so that's the first search. And then I have an adverb problem. Oh, really? What do you mean? Not in stage directions. I was, I was trained impeccably in Britain and you will see very few stage directions from me, let Mm. alone any instruction to a designer. I would never be such an imperialist as to tell another artist how to practice their craft within a script. I would not do it. Uh, but I do in prose the adverbs come, especially if I'm under pressure. And then so the second draft after like and you know is to cut the adverbs out and find the correct verb. See, that's the mark of a proper writer. When most writers are trying to find the courage to get rid of their beloved F and C words, Van's already moved on to losing adverbs. Second last question, does Van have a motto? I love mottos. Mottos are what get me through the day. So my family motto from my dad is there are worse things than pain. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's true. There are far worse things than pain. Um, And dad used to say, if I fell over or whatever, that'd be like, there are worse things than pain, Vanessa, get up. (laughs) Uh, My mother's motto is um, you can have 10 minutes. You can sook for 10 minutes, but then you've got to get up and get the fuck over yourself. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can have 10 minutes. So pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, brilliant for the three rejections a day phase of one's writing career. Great the 10 minutes advice. is great because that only, that only, you're only out of it for 30 minutes total, maybe factoring in 15 minutes reading the letter <laughs> time. Um, my partner and I have uh, two mottos together, one of which is no one's dead until they're dead. Uh-huh. And is that metaphorical that, dead or is it like dead, dead? Well, in the first case, no one's dead politically, influentially, oh, okay. yeah, artistically. Yeah, yeah. You know, Kevin Rudd's on Twitter. There was a time when you when you stopped being prime minister that nobody ever saw you again. No, you sort of dead. went to ex-prime minister land. That's yeah. not how the world works anymore. No. And because we do, my, I mean, my partner's a union movement guy and obviously we're around politics and stuff all the time. You, you know, people come back. Unless somebody's physically dead, they will come back. <laughs> and that's a reminder to be nice to everyone you meet. You know, to not feud. Don't be bitter, Bill. That's what Bill Clinton's mother said to him. Life is hard. Politics is easy. Don't be bitter, Bill. We say that all the time. Don't be bitter. Don't hold on to it. Let it go because you don't want to feud because no one's dead until they're dead. Yeah. And our other motto in this house is quite niche, is um, don't dine with Nazis, don't dance for trots, which is... Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's a German saying, which is, if you have 10 people at dinner with one Nazi, you have 11 Nazis. Oh, wow. So very much in a That's a great you keep. Yeah. Um, and also, don't dance for trots, trots being vanguardists to yeah. exclude themselves from the mainstream conversation. Don't mm. play to a small audience. It's very yes. easy oh, to play to a small audience. That's lovely. That's lovely, yeah. Um, just, just the, uh, you've got 10 minutes thing. I, I did, uh, I, I had a friend... Um, her longtime partner split up with her in a very dramatic way and she got a heartbroken by this guy and she said, so I'm giving myself a week. I'm giving myself a week to grieve and then I'm over it. And she did. And I was like, fuck, that's impressive. I had this extraordinary encounter with an American writer and actor at the weirdest artistic event I've ever been to, which was a a short film festival in Munich. And it was, I had made a short film and it was selected. I was in Europe. I went to this festival. They put us up in this hotel in the middle of nowhere. And you know when you have those sort of spirit journeys where you just united with people who you know you will never see again in this sort of weird bubble 
of and and she and I and this Belgian guy um we broke out of this film this weird film festival and we drove to Salzburg and reenacted wow. scenes from the sound of music and it was just one of those things <laughs> it's extremely weird and you know and you never see them again like they disappear from your life but they're there yeah. to sort of impart these you have these adventures they impart wisdom and I had just come out of a relationship again um a bit of a recurring theme <laughs> and she said to me the worst thing you can do when a man goes is stop yourself from crying. She said, you cry, you cry until all of the tears are gone and you yeah. will never think of that man again. And it's totally true. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, she, I was worried about her because she put a cap on it. I, I can tell you now she channeled it into those days. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I, I don't even want to imagine what her kitchen looked like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you could, last question, if you could go back five years, what advice would you give yourself? You know, uh, probably, um, I'm trying to think, I think maybe be more prepared. So my mother has a diagnosis for terminal small cell cancer now. So I am reenacting what I went through with my dad, with my mum, and it's worse because you know what's coming. Were they together when your dad died? Yeah, my parents were one of those you know, met one another in their thirties. They'd both been through a lot. And this was in the seventies and they met at Redfern RSL. Hmm. Like, did I mention my bogan pedigree? <laughs> pretty impressive. And mum just saw him and went, gonna marry that guy. And wow. they were engaged within six days. My dad proposed to my mum and she went, isn't that a bit soon? And dad went, Barbara, when you know, you know, and oh. she agreed. And that was it. And they were married from then on. Um, they are a pretty amazing couple, actually. My parents were pretty incredible. And I think five years ago, I should have been more prepared for my mother's inevitable decline. I think the thing is that, you know, if, if you have a close relationship with your parents, you, you sort of believe they're immortal. Yeah. You know, and the fact that death took dad, well, obviously, I think part of my brain went, oh, well, then mum has been spared. And it's, that's yeah. not how yeah. life works so you know it, it's that line you know the the end of all all love is grief mm. and organizing your life around what is precious to you like in some ways i've been i've been one of the rewarded from coronavirus as crazy as that sounds because my mother currently has it on a cancer board which i'm not thrilled about but she's doing okay the coronavirus is not what's going to bump her off um but when the coronavirus lockdown, I was going to Sydney to be with mum after she got her diagnosis last year and the coronavirus lockdown came down. And so I had six months of being in the house with my mother, like 24 seven, because we weren't allowed to go anywhere. And I, that was a real gift, actually. That was a gift of fate that I got to spend that time with her and talk about her life and remind her of all the extraordinary things she did at a time where you know, she was just a working class girl from the Burbs and took herself around the world. And we filled her house with vintage po- travel posters of all the places she's been. Like my mother was like in Nagasaki in 1962 and things like wow. that. Like these incredible. And I was just like, who were you to even imagine that? And she was like, I just wasn't cut out for the life that everybody else was pursuing. I didn't want to get married at 19 and start having children. I wanted to see the world. And she went to Egypt and she hitchhiked through Switzerland and met a guy and fell in love in Toronto and eloped to Mexico and then changed her mind and then went to New York, like these amazing adventures she had. And I think five years ago, I should have been, I should have 
been more aware of her mortality and factored that into my life more. And I think, you know, the conversation I'm having with myself in five years from now, now in this conversation between you and me, is looking at the people who are most precious to me from all different parts of my life, from my professional life, the mentors I've had, you know, the, the teachers, the, the, the really good friends, the long-termers, the friends of my mother's who are going to be here when she's gone and gone make a conscious and deliberate effort to keep them in your life because they are important and they they give you the the sustenance you know like life is a performance and your audience is are the people who love you it's not you know it's not a market it's not an editor it's not a commissioner that's it's not a theater company it's not a programmer they're not your audience you know and i think i think that's the important lesson especially of midlife Thank you so much for tuning in to Out of the Question. We'd also like to thank all the guests that appear on the show. And if you have a minute, please subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app and leave us a rating. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter at Adam Zwa. Until next time, thanks for joining us.